Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. You know, when it comes to cataclysmic events in the history of the earth, the great flood takes it hands down. There's nothing that's ever been like it. And we have cataclysmic events happening. There was just an earthquake in Morocco. Over a thousand people dead. The fire in Hawaii. But the Bible teaches at Genesis 6 through 9 that God sent a global flood that blotted out the entire human population of the earth, except for eight persons, as well as all land animals and birds. And while many think that it's but a myth, the word of God is true. And God is not a man that he should lie. So we begin this morning by stating the simple fact that God did send a flood that changed the then known world and killed all life on earth that was not in the God-provided ark with the eight people. The burning question is, why? Why would God do that? You know, you can hear unregenerate people saying, How could a God of love do such a thing, right? But even Christians wonder, why would God ever do that? Well, here's what the Bible says about the flood. Beginning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, And they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land or the earth, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this awesome section of scripture, we understand that it's problematic. The interpretation of this passage has caused consternation in scholars for years and years. And yet, Lord, I believe in the perspicuity of scripture. That is the clarity of scripture, and we should be able to understand what this means. And so, Father, as we turn to it, we just pray that you keep our hearts and minds open. And Lord, that we realize that these are not... uh, Verses that are salvific in the sense that whatever interpretation we hold to does not mean the difference between salvation or damnation. But it is interesting, Lord. And there is a cause for this great flood that came upon the earth. So help us to work through these passages, Father, with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's what the Bible says about the flood. And from a simple reading of the text, it would seem that the cause of the flood was due to how corrupt humans had become. Verse 5, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a staggering verse. But that brings up another question. Why is that? What happened so that all of the people of that time were so evil? 
What caused such a corruption that God would be sorry that he had made man on the earth and, and that it actually grieved him? Well, many look to the first two verses of chapter 6 for their answer. Now, it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And they lay the blame on the union between the sons of God and the daughters of man as a cause of this great corruption. And there are at least three interpretations to the identity of the sons of God. And yes, I'm going to venture into this, okay? So buckle your seatbelts. The first one is that they're angels who came down to earth were struck by the beauty of the human women and cohabited with them and produced offspring. That's one theory or one interpretation. A second one is that the sons of God were from the godly line of Seth that intermarried with the ungodly line of Cain. And thus corruption came into the race. A third one that is less promoted today, uh, and I think rightly so, is that the sons of God are mighty rulers who took wives that were not from nobility, and thus they destroyed the noble line. That one doesn't work for me at all. But uh, there were many uh, commentators that, that held to that at one time. Now, in interpretation one, The idea is that fallen angels were incensed by the beauty of the human women and they lusted after them, leaving their proper sphere. They cohabited with them and produced offspring called Nephilim or giants. Half angel, half human. Such corruption caused Genesis 6-5. And so God had to send the flood. There were and still are men who hold to the angel interpretation. Ancients such as Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, believe that. And other church fathers such as Justin Martyr, 100 to 165 AD, Clement of Alexandria, 155 to 220, Tertullian, 210 to 258 AD, Ambrose from 339 to 397, and they all believed that angels cohabited with women and thereby corrupted the race. But Augustine, in 354 to 430 is his era, rejected that view, and being as influential as Augustine was in the church, he caused many to re-examine their interpretation. Today, many liberal Christian scholars would just deny outright that there's any truth to this account and it's mythological. And they say it's just proof that the Bible and the people at that time were taken up with myths and, and promoted this, and there it is right in the Bible. But there are even Bible scholars who would never agree that the Old Testament is filled with myths, and yet they hold to the angelic view. So at the outset, I just want to tell you that there are solid, born-again, regenerate, evangelical men, scholars, Hebrew scholars, that believe that angels cohabited with men, uh, with women, and therefore the race was corrupted. My professor in my Hebrew class in seminary, Dr. Bill Barrick, who is a scholar, he translated uh, the Hindi Bible. Uh, into Hindi, um, and he, he just, he's the one that every class he would start with a devotional in Hebrew, and he would tell us, if you don't know the original language, it's like kissing your bride through a veil. <laughs> and then he'd show us an example, and we'd go, wow. He's a marvelous guy, and for my exegetical project, because at the end of every class you have to do a project, um, I chose to write on the sons of God. <laughs> and I told uh, Dr. Barrick, I know him personally, he was a missionary in India, and we were really tight. 
So if I say, Bill, forgive me. But Dr. Barrick, I, I said, I want to write on the sons of God. And he said, are you sure, Stephen? <laughs> I said, I am. I said, I'm doing some research for this work called the Chronicles of Redemption. And I, I just, I really don't know what those verses mean. And I just really want to study it out. And he said, could I encourage you to choose a different passage? <laughs> three times he challenged me. And three times the hard-headed Italian guy said, no, but thank you. So I went to work and I studied my guts out. And I tell you what, a 30-page paper, no small paper. And um, I got it back from him and it was filled with red all over the place. Question mark here, have you considered and so forth and so on. At the end of the paper, I got a B. I'm good with that. That's not bad. Considering the fact that he held to angels, and I did not. I believe it's the line of Seth intermarrying with the line of Cain. And uh, he didn't hold to that. And at the end, he said, good exegetical work. Sorry, you're wrong. (laughs) So he graded me on the exegetical work, and that's what it was all about. But uh, yeah, and we laugh at that. We laugh at that. He's fun. Well, there are four explanations, basically, that people that hold to the angelic view, four sources that they go to to prove their view of angels cohabiting with men. And the first is antiquity. And if you read any articles, like you can go to uh, Got Questions, and you'll see them quote antiquity. Some scholars holding to the angel view call antiquity as proof of their position is correct. The thing that I I, I get a, a little bit irritated at is that these articles will state categorically they don't allow for other viewpoints and interpretations. I do. I, I, I'll tell you right at the outset, I know what I believe from my study, and believe me, I sweat through that exegetical project and I came up with what I believe. That does not mean that I have the end of the story here. Um, there are men that I really respect that hold different views, such as Dr. Barrick. But these ones that hold this angelic view point to extra-biblical sources like Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. He was a historian, and his works are very, very interesting to read. It gives you a, a window into the Jewish mindset at the time. He was not a believer. He was Jewish. Philo and apocryphal books of one Enoch... Jubilees and Baruch. But this is not the only position promoted in antiquity. And if you read articles written by men that believe that it was angels, you would think that there was no other viewpoint at that time in antiquity. Philo himself, in one place, refers to the sons of God as angels, and in another place, he calls them good and excellent men. Okay, well, that would be riding both sides of the fence, I would say. The Targum, or otherwise known as the Tanakh, which was the Hebrew Bible in the common language of Aramaic, circa 1 BC, it's not recognized as authoritative, maybe kind of like what we look at the Living Bible like, okay? And it was written in the common language, so it was widely used in that day. It identified the angels of God as human, you hear me? <laughs> they're not, they're not uh, the sons of God. We're not angels. They're human. And some com- comments identify them as judges or leaders, kind of tending towards that these are nobles that intermarried with lesser class of women and so therefore destroyed it. But the Targum's widest, widespread usage is assumed that such interpretation would have been the Jewish tradition. That's what the Jews were thinking about in 1 BC and leading on into the New Testament. This non-angelic view was especially prevalent in the more orthodox Judaism before and during the New Testament era. So it is not conclusive that antiquity and the Jews at that time all believed that they were angels that cohabited with men. But a lot of articles that you read, you will see that they just make a categoric statement that in antiquity, everyone believed it was angels. 
So, the argument for, from antiquity of sons of God were angels is not um, conclusive, even though there are writings at that time that could do that. How about the Septuagint? You realize the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, why, why do you have an Aramaic translation, a Greek translation? It's because of the 70-year the captivity. And then it came back, and they were just all spread all over. And so they needed to, uh, many of them had lost their Hebrew, and so they still needed to have an understanding of what we call the Old Testament, what they would call the Bible. And so it was translated by 70 men. That's where you get the term Septuagint. By 70 men in 250 B.C. Now, there are some manuscripts that translated the sons of God, which is actually in the Hebrew, Bene Ha Elohim. Bene is son, Ha is a particle, and an Elohim, or article. So, as angels of God, they actually changed it from the sons of God to angels of God in a Septuagint. And that's what proponents of the angel view go to. But in truth, it's only in the Codex Alexandrius. It's just one copy of the Septuagint that does that. The more critical editions of the Septuagint read sons of God. Now granted, it doesn't say men, but it says sons of God. But those who hold to the view that there were angels that cohabited with men will run to the Septuagint, that one codex, and say, see, it calls them angels of God. Well, that's kind of misleading. So, therefore, only the Codex Alexandrius, using the phrase angels of God, and the more critical editions, using the term sons of God, it's not conclusive. You've got fluctuation, just like today. Okay, You have good men on both sides of this. Thirdly, the Apocrypha is used by many who hold to the angel view. The Bible used by the Roman Catholic Church has several more books in the Old Testament than do the Bibles traditionally used by Protestants. We don't have the Apocrypha in our Bibles. These books are referred to as Apocrypha, and that word means hidden, the hidden books. They're also called the deuterocanonical books, which means a second canon. They are not canonical. They are not recognized as having authority. But they are interesting. The Apocrypha were written primarily in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that silent era. And the books of the Apocrypha are many. The nation of Israel treated the Apocrypha books with respect, but they never accepted them as true books in the Hebrew Bible. And the early Christian church debated the status of the Apocrypha. But few early Christians believed they belonged in the canon of Scripture. So even back then, they did not look at them as Bible. They looked at them as additions to the Scripture or extra-biblical. The New Testament quotes from the Old Testament hundreds of times. You can find Old Testament quotes in the New Testament hundreds of times, but nowhere will you find a quote from the Apocrypha. That's telling. And also, um, it's never, none of the books in the Apocrypha are ever affiliated with prophets from the Old Testament that are recognized. Nevertheless, it is to these extra-biblical books that some scholars turn to as evidence for the identity of the sons of God being angels. Bear with me, please. Okay, this is important because you've got to understand that there's more to this than meets the eye. And there's more to it than just got questions says. Okay? Which is a great website. Don't get me wrong. But you need to be diligent students of the Scripture to know what you believe. First Enoch, circa 100 B.C., is written, it's written that 200 angels lusted after human women and produced, uh, produced giants. Where'd that come from? Right here. Somebody wrote that down, thought it was cool, 200 angels. Had to be at least 200 because there were a lot of corruption that came out. <laughs> I, I don't know, but that's what it says. 
And those that hold to the angelic view will say, well, in the Apocrypha, we read this, so that gives some warrant to it anyways. Jubilee, circa 100 B.C., there's writings that say that angels came to the earth to help people, but they were consumed with lust and produced a race of giants. Well, they definitely hold to the angelic view. Seeing that the testimony of the Apocrypha was never considered to be authoritative or canonical, and that they are never quoted in the New Testament, it's pretty thin when it comes to backing up the angel view. Per me. I just, I don't buy it. Sorry. The fourth explanation that's given is a comparative designations theme here. You've got sons of God and daughters of men. God and men. There's antithesis there between the sons of God and the daughters of men. So therefore, they reason, this shows that there's a distinction made between the other, other worldly and the earthly. Yet there are at least 15 references to angels in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Literal angels. 15 times literal angels are referred to in the Pentateuch, which never refer to them as the sons of God. They're just angels. And they are referred to as angels, and only once is something else used other than angels, and that's in Genesis 3.24, the cherubim. They name them cherubim. And when you study out what cherubim means, you realize they are angels as well. They're just a distinct category. Now, note on the designations of the sons of God. Those who identify the sons of God as angels say that the Hebrew phrase, bene ha-elohim, translated to sons of God, is a technical construction. So it's a, it's a key term. And when this phrase is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, like in Job 1.6 and 2.1 and 38.7, it always refers to angels. How contraire. <laughs> Not necessarily. This is one of those categorical statements that are made that if you don't check out your resources, you might find that you're just following another man's ideas. There are only two places in the Old Testament where that exact phrase is used, and that is Job 1.6 and 2.1. Let's turn there real quick so you can see them. Job's right before Psalms, and I want you to go to chapter 1. one six says this, now there was a day when the sons of God, Beneha Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay? So that's an interesting. And then in 2 uh, verse, what did I say? 2-1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, and that's Beneha Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Again, it's got a conjunction, and Satan came also among them to present himself to the Lord. So, there's only two, and those are the two that use Beneha Elohim. There are others that don't have that article, Ha, in it, and they call, they're called Bene Elohim, but it's not the same. And so there's three places in the scripture, and only three, well, four, uh, because there's twice in Genesis 6, and then Job 1.6, and Job 2.1, that use that specific name. And when this phrase is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. They say that, but it's, it's only two, only two places, because that definite article, ha, is missing. Therefore, to say the term used consistently for angels is misleading again, since there are only two places where it's used. The fact that those two places refer to angels is clear from the context. It's definitely talking about angels, but not necessarily from the phrase. You get the idea from the context. Okay? These are important nuances that you need to understand when you're doing hermeneutics of a text. 
And the Old Testament does contain references to the sons of God as being human. Uh Uh-oh. You mean there's actually places in the Scripture that uses the term sons of God for humans? Yes, I do. In Hosea 2, we find the following description of the sons of Israel. You are the bene Elohim of the living God. You are the sons of the living God. Here the phrase sons of God definitely refer to human beings, not angels. Deuteronomy 14.1 reads, You are the sons of the Lord your God. Again, another reference to the sons of God as being humans. And one more thing about the term sons of God, even in the two instances where the sons of God are used in Job 1.6 and 2.1, listen up. The sons of God may refer to good angels because the conjunction and is used for Satan, and he is therefore marked out as somehow different from the others. The sons of God, which I believe are angels, it doesn't state that they're evil angels. That's an assumption you make when you see Satan thrown in there. And if you have the pre-understanding that obviously the sons of God are demons, You can't say that. It does not say that they're evil angels. It does say that they're sons of God, and they are angels. They come before God and Satan. So these are things that you need to take into consideration. In summary, the four reference points used by some to show angels as cohabiting with women is not conclusive. Not in my study. Now, the New Testament texts, many will run to the New Testament and say, 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, and 2 Peter 2, 4 and 6, and Jude 6 and 7. Well, let's look at each of those texts. And they'll use this and they'll say, this proves categorically that they were angelic beings that cohabited with women. In 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, it reads this way, in which he also, that's Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We cannot simply assume Peter was referring to angels when he wrote in 1 Peter 3.19 where he used the term spirits. But if you have a pre-understanding that it was the angels who were the sons of God, that cohabited with women, you will say those spirits are definitely angels. Nor can we assume that his readers would have had the angel view of Genesis 6 in mind when they read these words in 1 Peter 3, because there is no evidence of a uniform interpretation of Genesis 6 at that time as being angels. I already showed you there, it's disputed. There's no reason to introduce angels into the context of chapter 3 in 1 Peter unless you're forcing it into the context. Okay? Now, an alternative perspective by Wayne Grudem. He happens to not believe that they were angels in Genesis 6. Wayne is a scholar. I have a lot of respect for him. He says this, the most satisfactory explanation of 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, seems rather to be one proposed, but not really defended long ago by Augustine. The passage refers not to something Christ did between his death and resurrection, but to what he did in the spiritual realm of existence. Now, you've got to track with me. Or through the Spirit at the time of Noah. So here's what he's promoting. When Noah was building the ark, Christ, in spirit, was preaching through Noah to the hostile unbelievers around him. You say, oh, come on, Pastor Linetti, that's, that's a stretch. Okay, you might think so. But again, support from two other statements in Peter. In 1 Peter 1.11, he says, the spirit of Christ was speaking in the Old Testament prophets. Okay, so you have that idea right there that Peter understands that Christ was actually speaking through the Old Testament prophets. And then this suggests that Peter could readily have thought that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through Noah. It's not a stretch. And then in 2 Peter 2.5, he calls Noah 
a preacher of righteousness, and he uses the noun kairux, which is taken from kairuso, which we use for proclamation or preaching. And he says he was a preacher of righteousness. So it seems quite possible, not categorically, but quite possible, that when Christ preached to the spirits in prison, he did so through Noah in the days before the flood. Not in hell, as your minds run to. That's Augustine's interpretation. The people to whom Christ preached through Noah were unbelievers at the earth at the time of Noah, but Peter calls them spirits in prison because they are now in prison or hell. Even though they were not spirits, but persons on the earth when the preaching was taking place. The New American Standard says Christ preached to the spirits now in prison. The New American Standard, which is what we use, I use, is is much more a unit-for-unit translation. It takes every word and tries to translate it uh, literally into English. Now, we can speak in the same way in English. I knew President Clinton when he was a college student. That's an appropriate statement, even though he was not a president when he was in college. The sentence means, I knew the man who is now President Clinton when he was still a student in college. So Christ preached to the spirits in prison, meaning Christ preached to the people who are now spirits in prison when they were still persons on earth. It is not conclusive, but it is another thought that you need to take into consideration. And at least don't be like some of these others that are stating this without a doubt, categorically, they were angels that cohabited with men. I, you know, I think of Rosemary's baby, right? Are you kidding me? I've heard it said they don't have the equipment. Angels are a separate race, okay? And they don't, they don't produce, reproduce. They were made after their kind, just like God says all through Genesis 1. God was very specific with kinds. There's a flesh of fish and a flesh of birds. It's different. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox with my position. (laughs) 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Oh, this is conclusive. I mean, look at it right here. It says that there are angels that sinned, and God cast them into hell. He didn't spare the angels. He judged them and committed them in pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And it took place right at the time of Noah, because the next passage says, and did not spare the ancient world, and talks about Noah. That's a stretch, you know. There's a conjunction there, and, twice. There's three judgments that are mentioned here very clearly. One is the judgment of angels, and it says what it was. And one is the judgment of the ancient world during the time of Noah. And one is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter was identifying three distinct times of judgment. He didn't say that the angel's sin was linked to Genesis. That is a jump that we make in our minds if we have the pre-understanding that the angels were definitely cohabiting with men. He merely states that God did not spare them when they did sin. When did they sin? Well, they sinned in heaven and were cast out. He judged them and cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness. Well, all of them? No, some of them. Because we have demon activity now. So it wasn't all the demons or the rebellion angels at the time of their original rebellion with Satan that he cast into the pit, but he cast some in, and they're waiting for judgment. 
The next word, as I said, is important. It's and, which means in addition to his judgment on the angels that sinned, he also didn't spare the ancient world. And then the next word is and, again, to cite the third judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no warrant to link the angels who sinned to the ancient world of Noah, who was judged, any more than linking the ancient world of Noah to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, except by the fact that all three instances are of God judging sinful people. So, conservative scholars that do not hold to the angelic view of Genesis 6 simply state the Second Peter passage is mute in the argument of interpretation of Genesis 6. I said conservative interpreters. Jude 6 and 7. Oh, this is a clincher. This is categorical, right? And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. How? By cohabiting with women, okay? He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, and are all exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This passage does not refer directly or distinctly to angels. You go, oh, come on, Lynette. It says, and angels. What are you talking about? They are angels who did not keep their domain. Okay, I give up. It's true. They are angels. It is talking about angels. I can't deny that. Now what? They didn't stay in their own place. Instead, they abandoned their proper abode, and therefore they were judged. They were bound in darkness and held there and will be held there until judgment on that great day. And then Jude made a very interesting word. It's an adverb in the Greek, hos. The NSB translates it just as. The NIV is translated as in a similar way. Now this is important because Jude links the angel's sin as similar to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. You say, I'm tracking with you, Pastor, because I believe it's the angel's. This is the ones in Genesis 6. I'm tracking with you. Goes on to say, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having in like manner with them, in like manner with them, who was them? That's Tutas. Given themselves over to the identification of the antecedent. They gave themselves over to the fornication and indulge in unnatural flesh. Now the crucial question is the identification of that antecedent them, tutas, in a similar way. It, it, it's included in that. The word them is included in, in a similar way. Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding towns gave themselves to immorality. Okay, check, I got it. In Genesis 6-2, we're told that they took wives, right? That's what it says, right? Whom, whomever they chose. They took wives, that is the identifying act of marriage. The sons of God took wives. The Hebrew verb here, lakah, commonly describes marital transactions, including taking a wife for oneself, but it also could include one taking someone else's wife. Most of the former instances involve polygamy and potential adultery, but not rape. It's all talking about being married and living together. When indiscriminate rape is described in the Old Testament, there are verbs like forced that are used. You can see that in 2 Samuel uh, 13, 14. Those words of force are necessary. Why am I saying all this? Well, if we identify the antecedent of Tutos as the angels of verse 6, then Jude must be seen in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, not marriage, okay, but ravenous rape and fornication and titanic lust. Is that what took place? It says they took wives. Furthermore, the angels who visited Sodom, because they used Sodom, they say, well, look what those people were going to do in Sodom. They want to have relations with the angels, well, yeah, but 
that was people. <laughs> they weren't angels. Those angels were good angels. So you see how pre-understanding can really taint your understanding of other texts. Okay? So who were the angels who sinned and left their, per, uh, their proper abode? Well, they quite easily could have been the angels from the original rebellion of heaven led by Satan. And it's possible that some of these fallen angels have been allowed to plague humanity as demons. They plague some of the Taliabo people. I know that for a fact. While others have remained imprisoned. In reality, all three New Testament texts point to something Jude may have been impressed upon his readers. Not even angels are going to escape the judgment of God. Instead of promoting Genesis 6-2 means angels cohabited with women. The account of the sons of God in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, may be the reference Peter had in mind, in which case they did not specifically cohabit with earthly women, but they did possess people at the time. Now here's our little wiggle room, okay? It's possible, because I've seen it, that Angels who are fallen angels as part of that rebellion against God early on with Satan actually possessed men at that time and then they cohabited with women. Not the angels, but the men. But they were demon-possessed. I'll go that far. Because it was wickedness that they promoted. But I think the argument that was being made here is the fact that it says they took wives. It's, why would they bother with that if they were just so incensed with lust? They would rape them. They didn't have to go through the... Can you imagine the ceremonies of marriage? I don't know. You know, I've been in a tribe, and marriages last like three weeks in a tribe. I mean, it's a big deal. Why would these angels go through that? It, I'm sorry. I'm pontificating again. I'm sorry. Well, what about the giants, you say? I mean, what, what you're saying, Pastor, is kind of plausible, maybe. Not there yet. What about the giants? Because that's really got me confused. Well, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Those promoting the angel view say that the giants, the Nephilim, that existed in those days seem to have been the result of the union between angels and humans. Where else could they have come from than unholy union between evil angels and the daughters of men? But the Nephilim, or mighty ones, were on earth before this account and afterwards. It says it right in the text. Would you please look at it with me? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. The Nephilim, what? Were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So they existed before these sons of God came into the daughters of men. And they existed afterwards. Now, the word Nephilim is taken from a Hebrew word, nafal, which is its root word, and that word actually means to fall upon others. It's used in Joshua and Job and Jeremiah. And therefore, it could refer to those who attack others. Okay, They're mighty men. They're, they're warriors. And it's possible that the Nephilim could be physical giants like Goliath. Furthermore, Numbers 13.33, which is way after the flood account, okay, uses Nephilim twice to describe the son of human parents. His name, the father, is Anak, or Anak, okay? Anak, in Numbers 13.22, 28, and 33, is said to be the son of Nephilim, or the father of Nephilim. And Nephilim, if it does denote offspring of human parents in Numbers 13.33, then why not in Genesis chapter 6? So the giant thing kind of dries up for me. 
Okay? Bottom line. And we'll wrap up with this. It's already become obvious that my personal position does not lend toward the idea of angels. Coming to earth and cohabiting with human women for all the reasons I just went through. That is not to say that there are not excellent biblical exegetes that differ with my opinion on this and my interpretation. I'll allow that demons most certainly could have possessed men at that time, which answers some questions. But here's a summary of why I hold the view that I do, that the sons of God were actually from the line of Cain, who cohabited with women who were from the line of Seth, the godly line. It's context. There has been a discussion of the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Remember the two families that I talked about a while back? And you see them in chapters 4 and chapter 5, the line of Cain in chapter 4, and in the line of Seth when they began to call again on the name of the Lord in chapter 5. Then in chapter 6, there's this discussion of mingling of the two lines, and chapter 7 brings the judgment of the flood because of corruption. Number two, the universality of sin. According to Genesis 6-5, it was the total wickedness of man that brought about the flood, and only man is mentioned as receiving judgment. Nowhere in chapter 6 do you see angels being judged. And if they were the proponents of this horrible wickedness, I would think God would make that categorically clear that these angels really sinned in taking these women and he judged them properly. But it was man that was judged and wiped off the face of the earth. Number three, sons of God implies men. While specific term sons of God is used in the Old Testament of angelic beings, there are also other uses of the term that show it referring to men rather than angels. And the fact that there could be men who are called the sons of God rather than angels gives you pause. And then giants. The giants are Nephilim, and it does not say that they are the result of what happened in verse 2. Just look at that verse again, okay? It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Now, you need to take a leap to equate that the offspring of the Nephilim who you're identifying as offspring from the angels, that they produced more corrupt people. That's a jump in logic to do that. Why were they mentioned? Well, because the uh, progeny of the relationship was like the Nephilim. They were violent men. Violence reigned on the earth at the time of Noah. And then the repetition of the word man. In Genesis 6, 1 through 6, the word men or man are used five times. The context is all about human beings and not angelic. Now, just to wrap up, and I hate to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to name drop R.C. Sproul. He, he, you know, he, he's with the Lord now, so he knows if he was right or not. But R.C. was kind of a Bible student. He kind of understood the scriptures a little bit. He wrote this. Following the narrative of the fall in Genesis 3, the Bible traces the lines of two families, the descendants of Cain and of Seth. Cain's line is recounted in Genesis 4. And this line displays a proliferation of wickedness, capped off by Lamech, who was the first polygamist in verse 19 and who rejoiced in murderous, vengeful use of the sword, verses 23 and 24. By contrast, the line of Seth, which is traced in Genesis 5, displays righteousness. This line includes Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him, verse 24. In the line of Seth was born Noah, who was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, according to Genesis 6, 9. Thus we see two lines, one obeying God, the line of Seth, and others willfully disobeying him, the line of Cain, following the way of Cain. Therefore, many Hebrew scholars believe that Genesis 6 is describing not intermarriage of angels and human women, but the intermarriage of descendants of Cain and Seth. The two lines, one godly, one wicked, come together and suddenly 
everyone is caught up in the pursuit of evil, such that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, verse 5. We do not need to surmise an invasion of the earth by angels in order to make sense of this chapter. Now, that's a man that I highly, highly regard. Um, He does his homework, and he holds that view. I don't believe my position because of what he said. I believe my position because of my own personal study, and I'd encourage you to study it as well. We really need to be careful, okay, not to spend too much time trying to figure out whether the sons of God were angels or men, because that is not the intent of the chapter whatsoever, people. The intent, the theme, the main nexus of what Moses was trying to communicate through Genesis chapter 6 is that the human race had so corrupted themselves that only Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Only one man was left in the line of Seth, according to me. Only one man, and then his sons and their wives. Eight people, only eight people escaped. So, more on that next week, because what I want to talk to you about next week is a biblical anthropology. What, what does it mean, chapter 6, verse 5? What does that mean for us as human beings? Okay? And then we compare that with Noah found grace. It's the first, uh, it says favor in most Bible, but it's the word for grace. And that's the first use of the word grace in our Bibles. And so we're going to do a comparative next week on that. I'm sorry for the pedanticness of this sermon today. It's not a typical sermon, but I had to get this out. Do you know why? Because we have a lot of young, ardent men here, and I let the debates begin. (laughs) But be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Don't forget that, okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for the thrill of studying it and grappling with these difficult passages. And Lord, thank you that it's not a salvific area. We're not going to lose our salvation if we believe wrongly on this, but it is so interesting to study, and your scriptures aren't silent. So Father, help us to be good stewards of the word of God and do our own homework and not just say, MacArthur believes it, I believe it. Sproul believes it, I believe it. Lord, that's just man following. We don't want to be men followers. We want to be Christ followers. So help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.